When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. From the southernmost point of Dorne to the lands of always winter, and what is west of Westeros and the shadows in the east, this is Casterly Talk, and the Game of Thrones rewatch continues. Hey everybody, I'm Ken Napsok, and welcome to Casterly Talk. You might be listening on the podcast feed, you might be watching my face here on the YouTube channel, or maybe you're doing both, which would be great. That's 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 my big Varys and Baelish like plan. Does Varys really? Yeah, Varys, Var- Varys has plans. We'll we'll restore the Targaryen thing. Yeah, okay. Apologize, Varys. Hey, everybody, we got a fun episode here today because this is actually, I think, one of the underrated episodes of Game of Thrones. We are deep into season four now. Season four, episode four, Oathkeeper. This is, like I said, one of my personal favorite episodes. Uh, when you think of Game of Thrones, the show slowing down, having those one-on-one conversations that we all relish and, and sometimes miss, and I do too. It's by loving uh, most of season seven, a lot of season seven, and pretty much all of season eight. I'm one of those fans. I do miss these kind of slower episodes. I get it. I get it. We don't lose these episodes just because later seasons got a little faster. We always have these ones to go back, and there's always things to learn from, learn about, connect to our own lives, and connect to the overall story of HBO's Game of Thrones. If you're just joining, we're going through a big rewatch here on Castling Talk. We do love covering all things World of Ice and Fire, and coming up soon, little Rings of Power. Going to take a little dive into Lord of the Rings. Some of you want me to cover Willow, which I'm a Willow fan, and I can't wait for that show on Disney+. Plus. We'll get there when we get there. Uh, maybe maybe we'll launch, we'll launch Willow Talk. I don't know. The excitement for that show is, uh, is palpable in the nerd community. Uh, but anyways, we are a show that is right now on this big rewatch. And often uh, the, the, the highlights, the things I love about these episodes is going back. And, and we've all done the big rewatches. We've all watched these episodes on our own time and time again. But I love going back and just seeing the themes in the episodes, seeing what's there for us to uh, take and move forward with the show and with the story and what, what it was telling us and what it's trying to communicate to us as a show that's chock full of life lessons. Who are you going to learn those life lessons from? Tywin? Oh, not really present in this episode. Cersei? I mean, you know, she's got some points. Brienne? Steadfast, true of heart, Jon Snow, 
the altar boy. Who are you going to learn those lessons from? Let's dive in. Uh, you know what's going on here. Original air date of Oathkeeper was April 27, 2014. I love putting that out there because it just uh, really highlights uh, how time just slips away from all of us. The director was Michelle McLaren. Uh, she did four episodes of Game of Thrones. Uh, she is a great director, and I'd, I, I would love to see her talked about more in the pantheon of Game of Thrones directors. And I think it's based uh, on a lot of her uh, you know, all, her overall work in Game of Thrones. But I love this episode, what she pulls out of uh, what is there. The credited writer, uh, Brian Cogman, the keeper of the lore on the show. Uh, and there's a lot. You can find a lot of interviews and comments. I think Brian's very excited when uh, you talk about the episodes he wrote. And I would, too. Uh, the story of Cogman is great. Uh, more of a writer's assistant, assistant Ben F. Weiss in, 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 in a writer's uh, room kind of way. Again, keeper of the lore. Uh, and then he just kind of not worked his way up like Baelish, but just got the chance to write a lot of these episodes. And, and I love his story. I love that there. Uh, uh, and a cinematographer, this was Robert McLaughlin and Crispin Green, the editor. I think that's uh, both, those are two key credits for slower um, slower paced episodes with deeper conversation based scenes uh, you you need uh, the pacing has to still be there and editing and how it's shot and how it's directed all key anyways that's why we like highlighting those names as i've said uh, no secret here this is one of my favorite episodes uh, i it just always stood out to me it is one that just uh, has uh, I keep going back to these quiet conversations that uh, because we're at the halfway point of the show, season four, and, and about the middle of season four, it's not necessarily a classic midpoint in terms of storytelling or one particular script uh, in that classic sense of what a midpoint is. But it does kind of, we, we a lot of the characters we've been following for a while, going through bigger changes, about to go through bigger changes, and some of their plots and some of their situations are moving forward. And, uh, I mean, Danny, John, uh, uh, Brienne, Jamie, going through some big stuff in this episode. And uh, just love that. I love tracking that. And truly, truly a midpoint for this episode. Because season four is uh, introduces a lot of newer characters and, and the plot starts getting a little wider, we don't spend time with Tywin. We don't spend a, a time with Oberyn. We don't uh, spend a lot of time with John and Danny, but they have big things in these episodes. A lot of time with Jamie Lannister, a lot of time with Tyrion, Brienne, and a little time with Patrick and Cersei as well. Uh, no Greyjoys, uh, none of that kind of stuff there. And uh, some key stuff, I think, with uh, Bran and, uh, and and Mira and Jojen and Hodor and uh, Summer. Don't forget, North of the Wall. All right. Love looking at the kind of reaction then, the legacy of the episode now, what this episode is known for. At the time, and if you look, if you track this, almost this is the period of time where almost every week was setting a new record. Uh, it's like, uh, you know, after uh, Hank Aaron passed Ruth, every homer he hit set a new record, and you celebrated. Uh, this set the highest viewership mark at the time, 6.95 million viewers on first viewing. Just short of 7 million people sat down to watch this uh, when it first aired, again on April 27th, 2014. Uh, the legacy of this episode and what it is known for is what I call the split. This is the first episode, and this is, I agree with this statement, uh, agree with the um, analysis of this, though I have a different take maybe on this idea. 
And this, of course, the split. This episode is where you very clearly see the show is doing things differently than the books. Now, if you listen to me long enough, you, you can almost be exhausted of me saying the show did that from the beginning. 30 seconds in, things were a little different. Things looked different. The feel was different, but the overall vibe is the same, and it followed more closely, without a doubt. This is why I don't disagree with this idea that this episode is the split. In fact, going back to my reaction when this episode first aired in 2014, I had some quote-unquote issues, because by this point, I'd become a book reader. As I've said before, didn't start out as a book reader, but after season one, devoured it all. Kind of waited, season, book, season, book, but by this point, I had gone all ahead, had finished... um, I finished all five of the books by this point, or at least was, I think, working my way through book five when uh, season four began. So season four, I had a little bit of that, uh, you know, I'd earned that smug attitude. I even have the shirt. Now today, I should, I, I want to highlight this. This becomes a key. We, we also mentioned we, we spent a lot of time with Tom and, and Marjorie. I'm wearing, get the sh- my Sir Pounce shirt. Yeah, if you're watching on YouTube. Love my Sir Pounce shirt. It's one of my favorite uh, Game of Thrones possessions. Uh, but I also have one of those shirts that says uh, in, the, in the Game of Thrones font, uh, that, that, it, that didn't happen in the books. Which I love. I love the spirit of it. I can have those conversations, have fun with that. Uh, I just, I, at some point, I kind of grew tired of that. I grew tired of that even from myself. Uh, there was, I did not like the mutineer storyline. And there's things I don't like. It, it, it's it's not my favorite. It's a little too dark. It's, it's uh, um, if you read into it, Cogman even has some great stories of how this episode was supposed to start at Craster's Keep. It was a little more brutal, a little more graphic, and even for uh, the show at this point, which, by the way, as we said, it's just come a week off coming uh, coming off a, a, a their first big controversy with the Jamie and Cersei uh, scene at the foot of uh, Joffrey's body. Uh, they made the right decision way ahead of time <laughs> of pulling back on what was going on up there with the mutineers and Craster's uh, wives. Uh, there's there's some uh, you know some stuff going on there. It's no longer just fun sex position, and they realize that it was a little too brutal. Uh, but some of it does remain, and I do remember that being discussed as well. How could how how could you not discuss it coming off of what was going on in season uh, uh, four, episode three? Um, so then going back, I I I remember being like, well, John does this doesn't happen in the books. Now there's there's some kind of hint of what happens to the mutineers in the books. Uh, you can dig up those details along the way if you'd like. Um, uh, the mutineers are there; they're up there. They, they, uh, you know, even though it's slightly different, they, they do, uh, you know, take out Jorah Mormont. They're up at Craster's Keep. Some has to happen to them in the books, and, and maybe they'll uh, still uh, come. We don't know. George, let us know. But I, at the end of the day, I kind of agree and like a lot. And when I say end of the day, it took a few years for me to look back at the mutineer subplot and be like, okay. John, it, it it works just plot wise. John's like, Ooh, I told those those guys up there; they know the truth. I've I've lied to the the free folk. Uh, we need to go up there and deal with them. It works for uh, Janice Slint and Alistair Thorne's storyline of, of of removing John, and then I like the almost interaction we're going to get more next week, but we get a little bit here with Bran, uh, John being so close, the dire wolves kind of being around each other. I I, I like that. It's a good. Uh, Middle of the road, almost interaction uh, that doesn't take away what with what happens later when John and Bran are reunited, and it's wonderfully frustrating to me. Like it's oh, just right there, right there, right there. So, in the end of the time, at the end of the day, time kind of uh, heals some criticisms. I think once you have the big picture. 
But I also think it's an easy critique. I'm not going to say lazy, but maybe I want to. It's an easy critique just to say, "Ah, here it is. This is the episode where clearly they split. Might be good now, but it could be disastrous later. There were some reviews out there at the time. IGN had some where the folks were kind of saying that. I just don't think, I I just, I think you're missing a lot with with what's going on. I'm going to keep dying on that hill. Um, until I'm pushed off of it. I'm I'm sure a lot of you want to push me off of it. It doesn't mean everything works. It doesn't mean every decision that the show made on its own works for me or works for the show. I'm here to have those discussions as well. But uh, you just can't deny that by this point, the show was almost like slapping you across the face going, wake up, we're doing our own thing. And we're taking this world and telling the story we need to. uh, And I like that. Some of the biggest departures uh, here are... um, and I'm just kind of listing a couple of them here. We mentioned uh, the Crasters Keep Mutineers brand storyline, pretty big. Uh, Grey Worm and Missande having that conversation to start the episode. Not something we really get in the books or haven't got yet. Again, if there's little details, little scenes, little moments that are in the books, always feel free to remind me. It's been a couple of years since I've uh, taken a pass through uh, Storm of Swords and Feast for Crows. Uh, you know, so I try to do some research to connect it up there. Um, but the Grey Worm and Missandei scene we'll talk about in a bit, I, I, it's, I'm thankful that it's there, and it's important that it's there for the show, and that's one of the, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Grey Worm is the one that goes into Marine. It's not Jorah and Sir Barristan. A little bit of that was taken into the Yunkai plot with Dario in Season 3, which is a great moment, so there again, another change. And they are, you know, you, you got Jacob Anderson there as Grey Worm. You, you need to use them. They could have even used him more. And I think it's very intriguing. And it just makes a ton of sense. And it's very emotional. It's a powerful theme. This idea of no one can give you freedom, brother, if you got to take it yourself. And that is a change they, they made. And he, I'm here for it. I'm here for that one. And, of course, the big one, something that was, I guess you could say, yeah, I guess you could say suggested by the books. Um, but it's totally different. And this is uh, the reveal of the lands of always winter and the Night King. And man, that was something back in 2014. I love this. Love this reveal. Now, at the time, we thought, oh, that's the Night's King, not the Night King. And there was that even uh, that little like, character description or episode description on HBO's app at the time that didn't label him the Night's King. Um, as we know, Knight's King was the 13th Lord Commander of Knight's Watch, uh, goes, uh, goes north, you know, falls in love, starts dating, nice little simple relationship with a White Walker queen, and uh, uh, bad things happen. Uh, I, yeah, I like this in the end, and I was so excited then. But here's, here's the thing, and, and I, 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 I was in this position in 2014. You have that sequence at the end of the show, which is, it's wonderful. It's, it's a White Walker horror, which I always, I always, those White Walkers always scared me back in the day. It's this big reveal. It's the most we've really ever seen of them. You, you have the horror of the screaming child being turned into a White Walker. And this reveal of, oh, this, uh, you know, icy Darth Maul, which is, I still think, fair to call him that. Uh, you know, leader of it. Oh, that's the Night's King. Here we go. And then you could tell your friends. You could go on podcast and say, well, the Night's King is the 13th Lord Commander, blah, blah, blah. And um, and it's fun to have that knowledge. And I think a lot of Ice and Fire, uh, World of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones is about, you know, knowing 
this is that, and that is the relative of this. You know, the show cut out your Harris a second, but it, 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 it's fun to have that information. I love that information. Um, but then when things start going a little different, I think when you're on unsteady ground, and book readers after this episode were on very unsteady ground. Your head's kind of spinning. Wait, this is different. I don't know what's going to happen. And some, this is this is general talk here. Some might go forward and be like, hey, I'm, I'm great with that. But at the time, I was one who just felt I could no longer be the smug one at parties. This is my experience. Uh, so if it wasn't yours and you're, you're a book reader and it was a different experience, that's yours. Mine was, I, I, now I don't feel like I know. Now I feel once it was kind of revealed, and I don't think we really got the reveal till season five, Hard Home, that it wasn't the Night King. It was the Night King, and it's something different. It represents something different. Uh, I was knocked off my pedestal a little bit. And, and uh, you know, these this Sir Pounce shirt, you know, didn't mean as much. Still does in the show, but didn't mean as much. So without a doubt, though, whatever side of the debate you fall on, whatever side of the discussion you, 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 you choose to pick up your shield and sword to join, uh, you, you can't deny, and I will not deny, this is what the episode is most remembered. The reveal of the Night King. The peak into the lands of always winter, which is great, by the way. Love the design there. And then, oh, this is the big debar- departure. This is the split. Again, just don't think that's fair to the show. I, they had done so many things before that were different. Already were on their own path. Already knew they needed to be on their own path. And again, do they wander farther off the path from this episode on? Absolutely. But they were already doing it. And then... In having that discussion, being being kind of uh, stuck on the split, you're going to miss some of the things that are there. Because they make these decisions all along the way that are different than the books, we get stuff like this with Grey Worm and Miss Sunday. This scene is wonderful. Her teaching him uh, the language, which has her, her thought being, you get to Westeros, you're going to need to maybe understand this language a little bit more. Uh, you, you, the, the common tongue, you're going you're gonna to need to command maybe uh, Western soldiers. And, 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 and uh, this is key to what we're trying to do here. But also it's this connection between them. And it's this unspoken, uh, growing uh, sexual and romantic tension that's building between them. And then just the conversation we're having between them and her explaining Nath and, and the Summer Isles, um, what that means for the story and their story. Uh, in the end, as bittersweet and painful as, as that is. Uh, and then you get a lot of insight into Grey Worm just from the scene. But what he's here for? Kill the masters. And that never really leaves him. And that's why I think he makes some decisions later on. So I love this scene. Love this scene. And directed and shot beautifully. Written wonderfully. Love everything about it. And it's different. And that's why... I happily engage with some of the discussions about the split, the departure, uh, what what they should have done, what they needed to do. Um, It's just not a reality to go page by page to screen. Everyone, I think, knows that. But in just vilifying the show for departing or pointing to it as a reason for things that you don't like later on, you're missing moments like this. That's where I am. Impact on the story and us as viewers. What did this episode Oathkeeper do? Uh, we got a lot more clarity on Joffrey's death and and just kind of that plot and those mechanics, which I love. I was, um, I think, again, talking about where I was in reading the books. Now, now I'm kind of remember. I just remember kind of being, I needed to know, right? I needed to know. I wanted to know how the show was going to deal with it. And plus, in having some inside knowledge, and once you started figuring something out, those in the room with you, I don't watch Game of Thrones with a lot of people, but those in the room, if they're not 
figured it out. Then again, you have that knowledge. Ooh, check all in his hands. Ooh, check that. And this episode just gave some clarity uh, and, and what actually happened. And sometimes that's always fun, but sometimes it is important, the how. I'm always here to talk about the why. Why did the characters do this? Why did this happen in the story? What's the themes behind it? But how is very much important, especially a big mystery and a big plot. And you get the reveal, um, you know, because there's you could easily, the, the, Tyrion, without a doubt, has a lot of motive. So does Sansa, right? So does a lot of people. It's like, who shot Mr. Burns or who shot Jr. depending on your generational reference preference. I, I love that. So I love the reveal. I love kind of getting more. And I love just, it, it, it doesn't linger with it. It doesn't need to linger with it. It's not a murder mystery. It's, it's about the why of these characters' actions. So to have the plots revealed, it, it's important and it impacts the story and it impacts us as viewers. Uh, Tyrion is still without a uh, champion. Doesn't end this episode with anyone willing to stand for him. Um, doesn't end this episode with a ton of support. It's been hard for him to find it. This, of course, uh, impacts the story for what happens later on with Oberyn. This we know, but uh, it's important for Jamie and Oathkeeping, keeping promises and sense of duty. We'll talk about those big themes. Just some great stuff. I mean, Peter Dinklage is 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 amazing, as as we all know. But when you think about some of his some of uh, his his best scenes in Game of Thrones are him sitting down in a in a prison cell, uh, and and what he gets out of those scenes. What he what's he get what he gets out of season four. It's just amazing. Spends most of his time in shackles and in a prison cell. It's, it might be his his best season as a, as a performer, which is saying a lot for someone like Dinklage. Two big other things that I think impact the story and us as the viewers. Danny takes Marine, um, but not necessarily her and her army. Uh, this is, um, like I said, the, in the books, uh, the Marine uh, takeover. Uh, obviously bigger, obviously more layered, more complicated, but it's more similar to the Yunkai one. Uh, but this one, I really love this one. I love the the slaves uh, overtaking the masters. And yes, I know you have kill the masters written on the uh, on the wall and uh, either blood or red paint, depending on what you want to uh, put there. Um, I understand the discussion uh, uh, and, and David uh, J. Peterson, who did the um, all the languages for Game of Thrones, the linguist. Uh, a gentleman who I had a chance to interview on the old Screen Junkie show, uh, interest, very interesting guy. He's on record as saying, like, you know, I pointed out to them that, it, that you know, it wouldn't be written in the common tongue. It would be, uh, you know, and Valerian um, offered to do that. We had never really come up with uh, what uh, Valerian looked like written uh, based on what the descriptions are in the books. Uh, more symbols than, than words and, and that kind of stuff. And and the show, the note, the, he sent that note and they came back with a note. Nah, we want people to read it. And I'm fine with that. You're looking in a uh, you this this appeared. I remember this appeared in one of the promos for season four, and it just makes more sense that a general viewing audience uh, would see a trailer and and have a C written on the wall, just scrawled in a, like I said, either blood or red paint or a little bit of both. Um, kill the masters, much more powerful, much more powerful. And to hear Grey Worm say, I didn't hear that kind of come up and uh, up up and uh, time and time again. I, I I think it's it's better to have it like that. Anyways, Danny, as you know, takes Marine. Uh, and this is kind of when the hard part really begins for her. This is what I'm saying. This is truly like this midpoint. Um, we've been following Danny along the way here. Her rise, her surviving, her overcoming, her destiny, getting out of Karth, get, getting ships, getting an army, needing an army, uh, wanting to use her position and power to help others. She has that uh, realization, uh, I think, for me, out of Astapor, Astapor going into Yunkai. 
where I'm not just here to conquer. I'm here to free. She's a breaker of chains. Misa, the mother. She's all this stuff, and she gets the Marine, and you have what we're used to seeing already, especially the way season three ends. You have a little bit of uh, Danny as the savior moment. Um, the, 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 the shackles being thrown down. Um, the, the, the slaves have overtaken the city in, 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 in honor of Danny in a way, and, and they have freedom. Her flag is unfurled on, on, on top of the pyramid there. And it, this is something we're kind of used to. We've seen Danny so win after win after win. Uh, whether it be the end of season one, walking into the fire with the dragons, whether, whether it be, uh, uh, you know, closing the vault and getting out of Karth uh, with what she needs. Uh, Astapor, Drakaris, the big moment. Uh, Yunkai, uh, even, if, even though it's heartbreak for Jorah when she's more worried about Dario, she gets the city and its victories and the big Misa moment. And here, we're so used to this. It's win after win after win for Danny. Big losses are going to come. Big lessons are going to come. Which is why I love going back to this episode and see not where it starts to turn for Danny, but where it gets deliciously complicated, bittersweet, challenging. As I've said before, I've talked to a lot of friends, and we'll have you know Andres Cabrera back on the show uh, without a doubt. And he always talk about how he loves Danny, but Marine Danny Marine frustrates him. And I, I, again, I think that's kind of the point. I think a lot of people agree with that. And so I love going back to this episode. I think this is the it's a big impact. It is us being so used to seeing Danny win, and we are always rooting for Danny. Um, I, I, I root for her the entire time, the entire time in Marine. But right away, she's faced with a big moral decision. She chooses to go one way. We'll talk about injustice versus justice, this pursuit of justice, big theme in this episode. Um, she makes a decision, a decision at the time. I think we were all going, yeah. Right away, we'll see, especially when we really meet his dar. That does come at a cost. And big saying it's a lesson is, almost seems too small for what's going on with Danny. I don't want to just write it off as a little uh, uh, morality lesson for Danny. But uh, it, it's really interesting stuff. And, and I love that this episode really sets us up for that. It's the, it's the victory parade, but reality is coming in the morning. And I love that. Really impacts us, really impacts the story. Uh, we also get the big one. We get to meet the Night King uh, and, and and fully reminded of the great evil out there in the world. There's a lot of debates to be had over the Night King, his army, what it represents. I think it's it's wide open and, and, and therefore open to some uh, different interpretations. I've seen and heard a lot of discussions about it that I love. Uh, it represents uh, climate change. It represents this. It represents war. It represents... I, and I think it all is valid and all matters. I think you, you can put whatever you kind of want to this and it doesn't change the story because I think to me the Night King in the end just represents this kind of almost omnipresent evil and that we as a society, they as a society here in Westeros... And a little, little, little Essos. Would the Night King have gone to Essos? That's the question I've always had, and I think yes. Um, that it's it's there, and we're so worried with here. We're so worried with ourselves here, so worried with our choices here, so worried about fighting each other here, that we are, can never come together uh, out of any kind of compassion, empathy, uh, desire to survive together and deal with what's there. I, I, that, that is without a doubt, it's a simple general bumper sticker level uh, advice uh, and insight, but it's there, it's present. And uh, I, I think this is an episode that just 
this reveal at the end just it reminds us number one because we we've only really seen you know outside of I think the end of season two the White Walkers are you know just things we've glimpsed you know we see Sam slay one so you get to really see the design of the characters and everything that but this is we get like good two solid minutes with a crying baby and a White Walker going back home and we see the Night King and I remember at the time in 2014 I don't know how you out there felt. I was uh, wonderfully terrified. Uh, just absolutely loved uh, the reveal, mesmerized by it. And then I love that it fades in the background. It's always there, but even we get caught up week to week. And the machinations of the courts, what's going on with Danny, who will be on the Iron Throne, that's the fun stuff. And then, boom, it kind of comes back. That's why I think this, this episode, talking again about midpoints, of the entire series, this sets us up going forward. Hard Home is so effective, and it's effective because of, I think, this moment. It's effective because of what we know at the end of Season 2, what we see along the way at Craster's Keep, what we even saw in the first 30 seconds, few minutes of the show. Hard Home is the moment you hear those dogs barking in Hard Home. Can't wait to discuss that. I, I, I think you think of all, it's a Rolodex of White Walker memories. Oh, yeah. We forget. And I think the show does a great job with that. So, uh, in the end, is there a debate to be had over the Night King's motivations and we never really got to learn and uh, he's vanquished? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I can understand it. I don't think I was ever expecting the Night King to sit down and have a monologue, uh, <laughs> some sex position behind him about what he wanted, uh, like some of these other characters have, because I just don't think what he wants matters as much as just why he is there and why they are there. A great evil, a great threat, a great problem that is always hanging over us that we just forget. And again, I'm not some, this is not some deep philosophy here coming out of me. This is not some deep, wonderful insight. It's just there and present. And I love this scene. I love what it means. I really do think it impacts the story. All right, uh, moving along here. Hope you guys are having fun looking back at this episode with me here. Love going into foreshadowing and things with more meaning. These are the big moments uh, that mean a lot going forward. These are the little moments, or these are sometimes just the little goodbyes. Oh, that's the last time they'll be together until, or that's just the last time they'll be together. A lot of, a lot of it there. I mentioned the conversation that begins this episode, Grey Worm and Missenda. It's just, a, it's just love the conversation about the Summer Isles, the island of Noth, and uh, wanting to kill the masters. Again, Grey Worm says he doesn't want to go off to the Summer Isles. Uh, we know that's, you know, always say spoiler for those who haven't watched the show and are doing a rewatch with me. Uh, uh, apologize if I uh, get ahead of uh, the show, get ahead of the discussion. But, you know, this is, this is what we're here for. Uh, he, we know that's where he ends up, but I think it's 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 a it's a strong reminder. And I keep going to this term midpoint, which is I didn't make a lot of note, notes on midpoint. It just kind of emerges and discussing discussing here the idea of a midpoint. And then there's there's some different discussions uh, in screenwriting techniques, storytelling techniques. But the way I always look at it is is you got your your beginning and your end, and the middle is 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 this midpoint that is is taking the characters and their journey so far. Um, colliding it with uh, what's going to happen, big change. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a plot mechanic, but I, I just it it's it's a crossing of the story. Uh, taking this character, these characters, and the story from the beginning, and really transitioning it to what's to come. And 
for Grey Worm here, this is one of those moments where I think he is an absolute hero. He's done something. He will do something heroic in this episode. He'll do even uh, more heroic things later. We love Grey Worm. You should. I think you should. He's overcome so much. He's got such a great philosophy on, on it all, as horrible as his life has been to this point. I love some of the stuff where he's like, nah, wouldn't change my name, wouldn't trade at all because it brought me here. I love that philosophy. As hard as it is to hold to in life, I, I think it's great. But he is changing. He's growing. He's falling in love with Missandei. But his goals are kind of stated uh, very clearly, and those are the goals that might drive him forward. Kill the Masters. He does not want to go off to the Summer Isles. To kill the masters, and I think even by the time that he gets to Westeros, that's why he remains loyal to Danny. Uh, not just a matter of killing the masters or breaking the wheel, but this is what's in his heart. This is what his goal is, and this is what drives him forward. Um, I think it's powerful stuff. I think this scene is really great. Uh, a lot more foreshadowing. In Marine, we also get to meet uh, Mosador, uh, who will. Um, have uh, in just a, f- a short amount of time go from uh, a really sympathetic character to a really sympathetic character. I feel for him, feel for um, feel for uh, uh, the whole situation uh, around him, and it's a big um, again. Don't want to say lesson for Danny. Lesson sounds cheap, but it's a big, big learning moment, and maybe a defeat for Danny when um, uh, with what happens with uh, Mosador. Uh, going to a lot of stuff with uh, Jamie Lannister. The little things, so many Jamie things in this episode. It's a big Jamie episode. I love his scene with, uh, love all the scenes with Brienne, but is uh, the line of it's the duty of the Lord Commander to fill those pages and there's still room left on mine. Again, big kind of midpoint thing. We've, we know we have a lot of thoughts on Jamie until then, but we get to this point where he really, uh, what is, what is uh, uh, ahead of him in his life is just wide open, and he doesn't know when he's trying to figure that out. We'll talk a lot about that when we get to the themes and sense of duty and Jamie just losing a lot of what he has been up until this point, and things are going to be different going forward or he wants things to be different or there'll be struggles to make things different going forward. So I think it's a key line, again, leads up to, uh, I think, a pretty emotional point in Season 8, the end of Season 8 with him. Those blank pages, as Brienne looks at them, um, means a lot. A lot of foreshadowing there, but just more than more than plot foreshadowing, just uh, emotional foreshadowing, if you will. Uh, and it's interesting here that in this, uh, there's it's it's, just, it's a small beat in a bigger conversation with Jamie and Tyrion. But Jamie is uh, given a chance to free Tyrion. He's you know Tyrion strongly suggests suggests it in this episode, uh, but uh, he doesn't take it. He will take it eventually. With uh, you know. Interesting results. We have uh, Baelish, Baelish checking in, giving some lessons to Sansa. Oh, Baelish loves giving the lessons. Um, and it's, uh, I think it's a great moment that is about uh, Baelish trusting Sansa enough to give uh, what is described, I think, by uh, uh, Benioff. Uh, no, actually, I think it's wise. It's hard to tell them apart, right? Uh, they both kind of talk about this moment as uh, Baelish gives, uh, he trusts Sansa enough, obviously likes her enough to give her kind of the truth. And then she calls him on it. She's smart enough to call him on it. So he, he likes that. So he gives her just a little bit more of the truth or another version of the truth. He's never really going to give her the truth. That doesn't really come out of him until the end, I think. But I think we focus on Baelish in this episode, Aiden Gillen at his best. 
Love just giving uh, his desires. You talk about the Night King not talking about a lot what's going on in his heart. Uh, Baelish is going to always talk to those he wants to hear um, about what's going on uh, in his his mind. Maybe not his heart, in his mind. Uh, it's, again, it's described in uh, the notes from Benny Alpha Weiss as Baelish will do this to people he feels has no power or maybe needs him. Uh, and, and that's true of Sans in this moment. Highborn as she is, she absolutely uh, needs Baelish uh, in this moment. She, he, she is uh, kind of uh, beholden to him here. So it's someone with less power, and Baelish loves to flash his power over those people, his plans, and uh, says what he wants to say. I don't think he says too much. He just says what he wants to say. So we focus on that for that, for that reasons. But uh, you should also look ahead to all the lessons that Sansa will put together. She's getting it. That great moment when she says, I don't believe you, and here's why. Baelish smiles like, yeah, you're absolutely right. So let me give you another kind of half-truth and mostly a lie. Let me keep playing the game with you. Uh, this is another wonderful midpoint of the show. Sansa still has a lot more uh, to get through, a lot more pain, uh, a lot more horrible things will happen to Sansa. This we know, but... This is, uh, we are far removed from the little girl that showed up in King's Landing with the uh, big dreams of becoming a princess and then a queen. We talked about last week when she is fleeing the city with Sir Dantos and she gives that look back, the one that's in the trailer shot of with, with the, um, the cow, the cape on and everything. And, and, uh, and she gives a look back at the city as if to say, I, the, I, I'm gone. This is, I'll never be here in the same way again if I'm here at all. And I think this is, again, another a midpoint um, moment with Sansa. She is no longer what she was. She is far from what she will be, but she's starting to get it. And I think that's what's important about this conversation, even more than just Baelish uh, revealing some plot and revealing uh, his dastardly plans as much as he wants to. Some little uh, foreshadowing things with more meaning. Ollie, we get Ollie training. Oh, Ollie. And uh, he wants to train with the big boys. Uh, and John and Grant and everyone kind of cast him aside. Uh, might be a little bit of a mistake. We'll see. Uh, but Ollie says he's the best archer in his Hamlet. They're really setting us up. Ollie, of course, is a show-only creation. And I don't even know if there's any suggestion of, of, an, of an Ollie in the books. I don't remember that. Uh, anyone uh, can remind me if you'd like to. Uh, but Ollie is a show-only. And, man, they're setting us up. They're setting us up. From Egret killing his, uh, his, uh, his dad and that shot, the same shot that he's going to mirror at, at, uh, at, uh, in the Watchers of the Wall episode. And now uh, him just going, I'm, I'm a really good archer. And everyone like, sure, sure. Grant said, yeah, 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 if you're hunting rabbits. They're setting us up for pain later. They let us know, though. They let us know. Uh, last goodbyes, at least for a bit, uh, Jamie and Brianne. A lot of emotional stuff with them, a lot of things uh, in their relationship. So that one's kind of a big one. But a smaller one that is uh, just as important to me, I think, is uh, Bron and Podrick. They'll meet again. Uh, they get to say goodbye here. They've been through a lot together. The connection over Tyrion is great. So there you go. Looking at favorite moments and scenes here as we keep uh, going with our discussion of Oathkeeper, Season 4, Episode 4, directed by Michelle McLaren. Uh, I love uh, talking about favorite moments, scenes, and lines. One of my favorite lines is from Grey Worm as he uh, sneaks in with the rest of the Unsullied or some of the Unsullied into Marine and, and goes to the slave quarters. As they're having a discussion, as Mosador is trying to convince them to rise up, and they show up, uh, the Unsullied show up with weapons, but more importantly, they show up with uh, 
a purpose, the why. No one can give you freedom, brothers. You must take it. And um, I just like that line as its own. And it has some bigger meanings, of course, to the story and to life in general, I guess you could say. But love it here. Love it coming from Grey Worm. Um, keeping in, mind, keeping in, uh, in, in line with his uh, Kill the Masters. I don't want to go to the aisles. I'm going to stay here and take care of business. Uh, absolutely love Jamie and Tyrion in the cell. Uh, love the conversations we'll have later. Again, I could go on and on and on about Peter Dinklage just uh, owning every scene while sitting down in some soiled hay in a prison cell. Wonderful scene. Uh, love the line, Sansa's not a killer. Not yet anyway. Um, again, almost as the, the episode itself is like, we're, we're at the midpoint. People are learning things. They're growing. They're changing. Uh, Baelish, this is just good. You can get this tattoo. Uh, get this tattoo here. He's, actually, Baelish has got a couple lines like that. Uh, uh uh, last week too, with his, uh, he was a drunk and a fool. I don't trust drunk fools. This week we've got uh, two lines from him that I really love. A man with no motive is a man no one suspects. Uh, love that line. Again, you don't always have to agree with Baelish. Uh, I don't think we all should live our life like Baelish, but there's some good advice in there. Uh, I also love his line. I don't want friends like me. Uh, yeah, that's that is deeper meaning. Eh, it's a ruminate on what that means for my own life, but it means everything for Baelish. It also is a big confession to me. Not just about plot or crimes, but it's uh, Baelish going, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty bad. I don't, I don't want friends around me. I can't trust friends. Uh, if I have friends like me, I can't trust any of them. Uh, don't trust me, which, is, you know, at times I'd say uh, he's been pretty honest about the people. Uh, they've, uh, they've got a great conversation with uh, Olena and Marjorie. I uh, love reading notes from Brian Cogman on this uh, where he was uh, looking at uh, pictures of uh, now, uh, the late Diana Rigg and uh, looking at her stuff, uh, uh, the TV stuff, uh, what was the Avengers and stuff like that she did way back in the day, right? Um, I, of course, remember her most from the great Muppet caper and the Bond stuff and everything. And him just, Cogman having this realization, you know, they're already cast, but uh, Marjorie, Natalie Dormer, I should say, is uh, Diana Rigg of now. And Diana Rigg was her back then. And just how that makes a lot of sense for Marjorie and Elena. So that little bit of uh, insight going into the scene just makes the scene pop even more for me. It is also a scene about a big reveal. It is Marjorie uh, who's often in control. She's often, uh, you know, very good, very cunning, uh, very calculating. And here she is uh, kind of a little lost, kind of a little lost. Again, this is kind of the, you know, she's got this thing. If it didn't work with Renly, didn't work with Joffrey, don't know what to do. Am I even betrothed uh, betrothed to Tommen? I don't know. No one tells me anything. She's kind of lost. And Elena calms her down and then just reveals her side of the plot. I'm here to take care of you. Um, so you can focus on the scene for that. But I also just love the dialogue. And, and if you look at it from Elena looking at Marjorie and saying, forget my son, forget my grandson. He's all right, but eh, uh, it's you. House Tyrell uh, is, is, is yours going forward and recognizing that. And uh, I, I'm fascinated by that. And, and Elena saying, I was good. I was very, very good, which, you know, has a little bit of a giggity vibe to it because she's talking about seducing uh, what uh, would have been her brother-in-law because she didn't want to marry Targaryen, instead wanted to marry uh, Luther uh, Tyrell. Uh, and uh, sneaks up, finds her way lost, sneaks up to his bedroom. Come morning, he did not want to... Uh, <laughs> He did not want to marry her sister. Uh, so I love the line. It was good. It was very, very good. But it's followed up by um, 
not just the uh, sexiness of that line. It's followed up by the truth. It is, it is about uh, control. It's about how to protect yourself, how to get what you want. And she's telling Marjorie that, which leads uh, Marjorie to have um, her great scene with uh, Tommen in, in, uh, in the uh, uh, former uh, uh, bedroom of Joffrey uh, with, uh, of course, our man, Sir Pounce. Uh, love Sir Pounce. Love reading the behind the scenes of just this big, uh, giant, heavy cat uh, causing a lot of problems. Natalie Dormer kind of getting upset working with this cat. This is why I think you only see Sir Pounce for a little bit and why Sir Pounce doesn't come back. Some of the realities. So you don't have, when you're putting a book together, you don't have to, you don't have to deal with that. You don't have to deal with uh, a, an unruly cat on the set. You can just put Sir Pounce anywhere you want. Uh, so that's our moment with Sir Pounce. Love that moment there. It is a great scene. Cogman kind of describes it as uh, the third part of the Marjorie in the Bedroom trilogy. And it's interesting to know, especially after the conversation with Elena. It's, you know, she learns a lot about Renly and what she can do with Renly, what she can get away with Renly. Uh, not just talking about that stuff. I'm talking about uh, her goals, her goals to be the queen. She learns a lot about Renly in the bedroom. She then learns a lot about Joffrey in the bedroom where it is not a scene that is um, dripping with sexual tension. It's dripping with the tension of possible violence. It is the crossbow scene. It is Marjorie uh, learning, working her magic, trying to sink her claws in, yes, but just learning about Joffrey in uh, his most, uh, probably most vulnerable spot, his own bedroom, his own quarters. So she sneaks into Tommen's, which used to be Joffrey's, uh, which represents, um, in fact, that Sir Pounce is there, represents that Tommen is different, uh, even addressing that Joffrey wanted to, to skin uh, Sir Pounce alive and, and serve me his innards. How dare you, Joffrey? Um, Tommen is not like that. And it is a great scene. We'll talk about it when we get to the themes here in a second. But it is a, it is a completion of a trilogy. Anyway, Marjorie in the bedroom. Uh, love that uh, Love that way to look at these scenes about where she uh, works her best magic and, and knowing what to do, knowing what to get out, and knowing what she's working with. And uh, this is one, I think, um, in a way, does work out, right? This is the one that does make Marjorie uh, the queen. Doesn't go well, but at least in terms of that journey, this is the one that works, and she learns that from here. Uh, what can I say? What can I say about Brienne and Jamie? Um, so much to do with the big themes of this episode. I just love the little moment, though, trying to look at just a little part of the scene there when they're in the uh, Lord Commander's quarters there. Uh, the sword has been given to her, a Valerian store, a sword that she'll name Oathkeeper. The armor um, means a lot for their journey. Again, kind of a midpoint. They've gone through a lot together. They're going to go through a lot without each other, but find themselves constantly affected by what they uh, learned and picked up together on their journey. Big mid midpoint moment, but I love her line, I'll find her, talking about Sansa, for Lady Catelyn, big pause, and for you. And Jamie's reaction to that says a lot about what he feels about uh, Brienne, but feels uh, what he gets from Brienne in that moment, what he possibly, I would say, doesn't get from other people, particularly Cersei. Uh, respect, love, care, I don't know. Consideration, it's a great moment. I'll find her for, for Lady Catelyn and for you. Watch that moment again. Watch, uh, watch Jamie in that moment. I, uh, I got to say this. I, one of the reasons I think I didn't, especially in 2014, didn't love the mutineer stuff 
other than, eh, it's not like that in the books. John doesn't do that in the books. Bran's uh, not there in the books. Other than that, I just kind of really dislike Carl Tanner of Gin Alley, which I think is a testament to Byrne Gorman as a performer. Even from the moment you first see him uh, in uh, uh, previous episodes, yeah, you, you just don't like him. That's why they cast him. They knew what they were doing. Uh, again, in, in the books, Jorah's killed, uh, killed off uh, by lesser characters. Uh, there is... Um, it, it makes a lot of sense, but I, I, reading again some of Cogman's notes on this, he said that we, they felt the Mutineers 2 was paying off this idea of how far the Night's Watch has fallen, uh, just simply on the surface. We hear all the time, from season one till now, that the Night's Watch is not what it used to be. It's full of uh, rapers and thieves and killers and, 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 and just horrible people. It ain't, it ain't an honor anymore. And... They've, they felt that the mutineers, they got a chance to maybe pay that off a little bit. Because other than just some bad behaviors up at the wall, um, um, the way that Sam and Gilly are treated, all that kind of stuff, I think uh, you don't really see it. I kind of agree with that. It's just they're up there at the wall. This is where you really see how horrible some of these characters are, how some of these people are, and that they're just wearing the black because it was that or death. And once free of those regulations, and once free of Jor Mormont, once f- free of the Night's Watch structure or the other brothers that would strike them down, this is what they do, and they're horrible. And it's effective. I just don't like a lot of it. Um, and again, I think I don't like it because it is effective, and Bern Gorman is so good, and I'm such a Jor Mormont fan. And the detail of that skull, if you read about that skull, they actually kind of cast a little bit of... Uh, uh, James Cosmo's uh, face and, and his structure and his teeth and everything. So it really, you know, it kind of is his skull in a way. And, uh, you, know, you know, you don't do that to my Mormons. So um, I, lo- I love that moment, but love it because, uh, you know, I hate it so much, I guess you could say. Uh, and then favorite moments again, I, I really uh, I really love the, the Lands of Always Winter ending. And I just love seeing the Lands of Always Winter. It's one of those things, if you, you know, if, if you're like me, and, and you probably are, it get a, you get obsessed with these... Uh, uh, maps uh, and the worlds of uh, of, of Game of Thrones, uh, the lands, and, and I've always just been obsessed with the lands of Always Winter. Won a virtual 360 tour uh, of the lands of Always Winter. Uh, so I uh, love kind of seeing that, uh, just seeing, just seeing it, just seeing it. That's all. That's all. Uh, let's get the time we have left here today in the discussion of the themes and lessons and what's going on in Oathkeeper. Some of the big themes here are uh, the sense of duty. Duty comes up a lot. And what it is, what your responsibilities are, what are your duties, and what is your allegiance to those duties, or what are you as you try to serve those duties. That's big. There's one uh, big theme of the quest for power. It's a power that never ends. Uh, you know, I'll start that with, you see the Night King, we don't know his motivations, and you don't need to. He just wants to take darkness and spread it across the land. It's a quest for power that will never end, never end. Baelish is uh, searching for power here. Uh, Alistair Thorne searching for power. A lot of that uh, there. And then this idea of justice versus mercy. And here's the thing, when we get to that discussion of Danny Marine and and the stuff that Sir Barristan's telling her, it's 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 um, hard to kind of parse. It's hard to kind of pick apart and 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 say anyone's right or wrong. And I, I think that's one of the marvels of Game of Thrones versus other fantasy uh, uh, or uh, you know bigger sci-fi properties or fantasy properties or wizard properties, whatever that are more morality tales. Game of Thrones is a morality tale, but it just kind of it's 
leaves a lot of things open-ended and and not just presents both cases, but just says, these are tough situations. This, as I've said before, uh, Game of Thrones deals with what, with, with what is and how what is can affect you and how what is can tear you down and how do you make those decisions with what is actually going on in the world. And it's always a little tough. So justice versus mercy is a big one here. But starting with sense of duty, a lot of that really is uh, on Jamie Lannister. A lot of duty uh, talk pops up, including even Locke uh, joking about it when he uh, uh, Noah Taylor getting up there to the wall and befriending John. John asks him why he's here, and, and Locke even says, "Ah, you know, sense of duty. Join the Night's Watch, help the land." Nah, he concocts a false story of being a game warden and, and feeding a, a prize pigeon to his his children, and uh, you know now he's here. Um, so that's just a, a joke about the duty uh, idea, but it's all through it. Jamie has lost himself, and he can't fulfill so many of his perceived duties or what he feels uh, are his duties and what have been his duties. And I think personally because this idea of Jamie has open pages in front of his story, and you can look at it of just like, again, his, his identity is uh, the Kingslayer all through the land. And he, even going back to that great scene with Tyrion and him in the, in the cell here where um, – you know, he asks Tyrion, did you do it? And, and Tyrion jokes, if, huh, the Kingslayer brothers, how does that feel? You? That's been his identity. We've talked a lot about that. He's so much more and he wants to be seen as so much more. Again, which is a testament to Bran in that moment, saying she'll do it for him. It's one of the moments where someone actually sees Jamie, maybe sees him as he wants to see himself or what he could be. Jamie has a lot of perceived duties, a lot of them. Last week's theme uh, themes, a lot of them was protection. And uh, Jamie's had a big failure of uh, that duty. If protection is one of his main duties, Cersei is reminding him a lot in this episode. I know a lot of people were a little upset that uh, Cersei just did not give him the what for for what he did to her last week. But, uh, yeah, the show didn't uh, deal with that, obviously. Uh, But Cersei's a little upset. She's a little upset at him. A little bit, a little bit. Uh, And, and, you know, Jamie feels as though uh, loyalty to her, love to her is one of his duties. And he's trying to get back to Cersei. She keeps putting obstacles up in front of him here. Maybe justified in a lot of ways. Um, He's training. He's training with Bronn to try to get back to himself. His duty as a fighter, as a swordsman, the greatest in the land. The greatest, uh, you know, king's guardsman in the land. Now the Lord Commander. He's all these duties. Uh, But then he's... He's running from the duties he still has uh, or duties that he could um, accept, things that he can still fulfill, that he doesn't need his hand for, that he doesn't need Cersei for, that doesn't need his title for. There's a lot here in this episode where Jamie, uh, I think, hides behind other duties. Again, the titles and what he wants. Um, but as Cersei is, is protecting, uh, questioning his ability to protect, questioning his ability to fulfill his duties another duty another oath is revealed the one that he made to Catelyn Stark about getting Sansa or Arya but now they kind of just accept that Arya's probably dead it's going to be Sansa and he has dared dared to make another oath to someone else other than Cersei, to someone else other than the Lannisters, to someone else other than his duties as Lord Commander. That infuriates Cersei. And here is Jamie again, at kind of this midpoint again. This is what he was. 
This is what he could be. And he's here at this moment. And how he goes forward is completely unwritten. And Cersei does not want that. And she makes him choose between this new oath, this new duty, which just represents what he could be. She still needs him here too. She still uh, is trying to fill all the, the, the voids that are in her heart and soul. She wants this kingdom, and we know that the very kingdom she wants to, to, to squish in there, to, to, to hide the pain, a lot of it very justified. A lot of it, uh, things uh, Cersei should not have suffered, but that comes crashing down on her in the end. So she is angry. She's upset. She's holding um, Jamie back in this moment. And he has so much wide open space going forward, and he has these new duties. Now, he says in this moment, ah, look, I, yeah, I absolutely made an oath to Catelyn. What do you want me to say? I wanted to get out. I wanted to get back to you because that's my duty, my duty to you. That's what I wanted to do. You can't fault me for that. Cersei doesn't really believe that, and I don't know if he believes it. I think there might be some truth to Jamie saying that in this moment. I said whatever I said. I killed my cousin. I tried to do everything I could to get on out of there, to get back to you. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I really do. But what's underneath it is, In making this oath to Catelyn, insane. I'll get the Stark girls, part of this family that are sworn enemies of the Lannisters, I'll get them back safely, even though Catelyn's dead. He always goes back to that. Uh, Catelyn's dead. Uh, It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. But in his heart, it does. In his heart, it, it does. And he is forced to choose. And in this moment, in an indication of what he is, his connection, his addiction to Cersei, uh, he foregoes much of what I feel he, he, he could be. Uh, he go, foregoes so much of, of, of himself and sends Brienne forward, gives her the sword, the sword that his father was like, I don't care. I made it for you. Keep it. You're, you're a familyless, uh, uh, middle-aged, failed uh, Lord Commander. I don't care. He gives that on to um, Brienne, gives her the armor. She's not quite a knight. It's a big moment for her into what's going to happen with her life. And they're forever intertwined, sometimes painfully. This I know. But another midpoint moment for both of them here. But I love that for Jamie, he is just saying, I am at this moment, I, I, I am too weak. I, I, I have my, my choices. Cersei's given me this choice. She's, you know, Cersei says, what if I told you, what if I told you right out, get Sansa, kill her, bring her back to me? Would you do that or would you keep to this silly idea uh, of this oath to a dead woman and bring, uh, you know, get get Sansa to safety? You choose. Jamie's not strong enough to to say no to Cersei, but he knows in his heart, I think, that this is the oath that that is is more representative of, of him at this time. So he sends Bran, who has a great sense of duty. It's wonderful. Love the reveal of the name of the sword, Oathkeeper. Love that moment. I think Michelle McLaren and the actors get so much out of that moment, even more that might have been on the page, uh, when she names the sword. And, and it's just, it's, it affects Jamie, I think. If you watch that moment again, it's another moment of, yeah, I, you know, I can't do that. I can't do that. But Brianne can. She always, always steadfast in her pursuit of duty. We know duty is important to my man Stannis. And in the end, she'll fulfill her duties, her oaths. Uh, time and time again. That's why Bran is such a popular character. Truly steadfast. Uh, truly the, the heart of a lion, the heart of a knight. And, and, and this is such a big moment, I think, for her to declare, yes, it's Oathkeeper, because I keep my oaths. I know who I am. And uh, 
despite any titles, I'm not Lady Brand. Technically, I am. Great humor in the moment of Pod uh, saying Sir and then Lady. Um, but I'll keep my oaths, keep my duties. Uh, and Jamie struggles with that. He's still got a ways to go. Great stuff. Other duty conversations. Marjorie talking to Tommen about his duties as a king, his duty as a husband, his duty to protect her, to keep her safe, duties that uh, perhaps Joffrey was not prepared to uh, uh, handle and, and keep to. Uh, love uh, her kind of uh, appealing to Tommen's sense of uh, goodness, uh, his wisdom that he's uh, already showing, that Tywin is trying to cultivate in him even more. Uh, it's a great a great moment for Marjorie. It's a good moment for Tom and too, that poor kid, that poor cursed kid. But Marjorie appeals to his sense of duty as being a good king and eventually a husband. And I'll, you know, I'll be your wife. We gotta have secrets. Your duties to me is your wife, not your mom anymore. Um, great power play. Pod and uh, his duty as a squire. We start his uh, his journey of squire's already really begun with Tyrion, of course, but it's really a uh, uh, moves forward and amps up here. He's got duty. Sam regret, regrets giving up on his duty to Gilly. Got a little conversation about it. There's more that go, goes on at the wall than just, just this conversation, but Sam has that too. He's regretting his decision. He had a duty to Gilly to protect her, to protect the, the kid, and, and, and he feels as though he's moved back on it. And then I love too that John receives support from those at the Night's Watch who still have a sense of duty to him, maybe as a friend, as a brother, and to the memory of your Mormont, Alistair Thorne. And Jeno Slint of a different sense of duty, more of a duty and an oath to the quest for power. Uh, the Janos makes a, what would be a bold move. Yep, send John, agree to his plan, send him to get up the mutineers, uh, get up to the mutineers, and then they'll kill him, and, and, and he'll be gone out of your way. And I think they think, yeah, he'll probably have to do that alone. But they underestimate the sense of duty and sense of honor and a lot of those still up there at the Night's Watch. And I love that moment when they all start to rise, except for when Locke rises and the music cue changes. Uh, I think Olena has a great sense of duty as well. Uh, her duty was initially to marry a Targaryen, and she didn't want that. Uh, she uh, says, uh, then goes into the whole story with Marjorie about how she uh, seduced uh, eventually her, her husband there. Um, to me, that shows that Olena has a sense of duty to something else, herself, eventually to her family, now with Marjorie. And does not um, keep in line with the uh, duties she's supposed to have to society, to the patriarchal society that's there. They wanted me to marry Targaryen. It was all the rage back then. I didn't want to. It's not a duty I wanted to carry out. I wanted to do what was right for me, and now eventually my family. And uh, she says it plainly, and just in revealing to Marjorie that she had something to do, a lot to do with the death of Joffrey, saying, oh, but I do know. You don't think I'd let you marry the beast, that beast. A uh, sense of duty to Marjorie herself and her own ideas there. So Elena, wonderful character, uh, ties into so many themes in Game of Thrones. Talked about the quest for power. That was pretty uh, simple, I think. Baelish is, it's, it's crazy. Baelish has given up so much. Sansa's recognizing that, but it's not enough. It's never enough. That's a big lesson. This is a big Star Wars lesson. Greed, the thirst for power, the search for power. It never ends. And it often uh, only ends at your own destruction. Talk a lot about the big lessons from characters like Stannis. Uh, I think in, in the end, even even Danny. Um, 
I think that there's bigger things going on there, of course. But Baelish, just in this moment, like he's burning it all down. That thing of that thing of uh, he'd he'd burn down King's Landing just to be king of the ashes. You see it, and it's this quest for power. He tells Sansa the truth, and then tells her a little bit more of truth, and says, "I'd risk everything to get what I want." Sansa says, "And what do you want, Baelish? Everything." The quest for power runs through so much of this show, and in the end, it is not about, hey, who's going to sit on the throne? It's what does that quest for power do to all these characters? Alistair Thorne, a character I kind of like. He's, he's not the best. There's some things I like about him, but he can't see his duty from the quest for power. He confuses the two. It's going to be his undoing. And then, of course, I said Locke uh, j- jokes about the sense of duty in this episode, uh, uh, and, and he, 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 he doesn't stop there. He has a little bit of a quest for power going on with him as well, promised so much from uh, Bruce Bolton. Uh, so power, the thirst, the quest, the search, the grab for power, which is something Game of Thrones uh, deals with a lot. Power is power. What happens to all those characters? And what happens to the ones who don't necessarily want power? They do things out of uh, Not just the kindness and goodness of the heart, but with uh, the bigger picture in mind. Which is interesting, again, because this is an episode where the Night King uh, emerges, reminding us all that the greater good is uh, something to keep in mind when there's great evil out there. The final big theme here is justice versus mercy. What is justice in this land? comes up a lot. What is our version of justice? What do we feel is right? Uh, once again, we are cheering Danny, but the slide, the slow slide keeps going. And for those who maybe haven't heard me talk about this before, it, it's this is I never say that stuff uh, in a negative way to the character of Danny. There is darkness in her journey. There's pain in her journey, and there's a powerful man, painful ending coming that i think is part of the lesson this isn't all flowers and fireworks and roses and happy endings ewoks don't dance in this show here uh it's a different kind of lesson it's a different kind of journey and what our idea of justice is and what our idea of mercy is and what are our choices and how do we make these choices um again we are cheering danny because i think there's enough reason to cheer for her taking the masters and 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 pinning up um Pinning him up on on the uh, on the blocks there uh, as payback, as justice for the injustices they um, were part of with the slaves. I, I'm not here to falter on that. I'm not here to falter on that. But you were always given choices, and you're always given choices to either move you forward or move you back. And you can start to see Danny making choices that are holding her back, hurting her, or moving her back. Um, and, and that's the painful part of her journey. What this world does to her, she should be heralded as a champion. She is a breaker of chains. She is doing so much with her position of power and influence to help others. And the world does not reward her for that time and time again. Um, but that aside, she has this decision in front of her as Barristan says who knows very well when Targaryens start to go awry the city is yours sometimes it's better to answer justice with mercy and then Danny has a great line it's a great t-shirt line I will answer injustice with justice the search for justice is big John 
in playing upon everyone's uh, sense of duty, says we need to do this not just to protect ourselves at the Night's Watch as the Free Folk and the Wildling, uh, depending on how you want to look at them, if uh, the Free Folk army comes down and they get to Craster's Keeps only 60 miles from the wall here, they're going to, those mutineers are going to roll on us and join the army if they're given the chance and probably be killed before they even uh, uh, have a thought to do so. And they're going to squeal. We got to protect ourselves, but also we got to get justice for Jor Mormont, and that boom inflames the sense of duty in a lot of the members of the Night's Watch. That is a more direct sense of justice, right? Um, I don't know what Barristan would say about that. Is there any mercy to be given to the mutineers? I don't think so. Which why? feels back into, and I'm just thinking aloud here, this is why it's so complicated with Danny, why it is um, a powerful story to track for Danny. And I even hesitate to say her her fall from grace. Uh, that's not fair to Danny. Daenerys is this wonderful character uh, that society just time and time again does not treat right. And um, But I think, though, in this moment, it's interesting to go back. We talk about this big theme of, of the midpoint of the story, the midpoint of the character's journey. Danny gets this big victory, as I said, and the first thing she has to do is make a decision on how best to go forward. What is your sense of justice? What is your thoughts on mercy? And how best can you heal this land that you just took over, this land that is yours? You have the power. You are in control. You have done what you wanted to do, Danny. You've done what you said you were going to do. You've taken Marine. You've freed the slaves. Do you want more? What What is your thoughts on the quest of power? And she wants more. She wants to deliver the sense of justice. And there again, too, the quest and the search for power is about more, 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 often at our own peril. And Danny is uh, starting to step out onto that ledge. And folks around here like Barristan are there to hold her back, support her more than uh, hold her up or hold her back. And she's going to make her own decisions here. Is it right? Is it wrong? Are you still going to cheer her? This is why I actually love the story of Danny and Marine now more than I did when it was on the show. Because when, when we were watching the show and it was happening out in front of us, or if you're reading in the books too, you want more of those moments. Grab your ships, grab your armies, go take Westeros. Take what is yours. Get more power. That's justice. Burn down the land. Burn those cities. You're outside of the greatest city that ever was or ever will be. You're gonna, I'm going to burn you first if you don't let me in. And we're pumping our fists. We want that. We are celebrating just like everyone else is when she takes Marine. That I think we all kind of uh, overlook. The big lesson, the big choice, the big moment that follows. Justice versus mercy. It's a hard line. A razor's edge to walk. And Danny's on it. And um, here's supporters, best I can. Open-ended discussion on that. Different points of view. Which is why I think we love it. That's why I think we love coming back to the show time and time again. That is it for this week. Been a lot of fun to sit here with all of you and talk about Game of Thrones, talk about Season 4, Episode 4, Oathkeeper. 
We'll be on to episode five next in the rewatch. Also here in Castle Talk, cover any breaking news, more news, anything that George R. R. Martin wants to post on his blog, we'll talk about it. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so thank you all for the support. Don't forget to uh, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, tell your friends about it. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Even if you don't necessarily want to see my face talking about Game of Thrones or see anyone else talking Game of Thrones, uh, just subscribe to the channels. We build that out and race towards House of the Dragon in August, Rings of Power in September, and who knows what else we'll talk about here. But in the center of it all is our love of this world of ice and fire. You can follow me at Cadnapsock. Go to my website, cadnapsock.com. If you want to support the show, you can either use a QR code right here at the bottom of the screen if you're watching on YouTube and uh, send a direct support uh, donation, or you can go to patreon.com slash and support this show and a lot of other things I do. Or the greatest way to even support all these things, watch, like, subscribe, hit bells, tell friends, and keep coming back as we celebrate this world of ice and fire and dig in deep. We'll see you next week and next time here on Casterly Talk. <laughs>